Our text for this morning's sermon will be from Matthew, beginning in chapter 17. I encourage you to turn there with me. That we can honor the reading of God's word, I also encourage you, if you're able, to stand as I read Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Scott. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Amen. Making sure you're awake because I've got a lot of work to do if you're not. Uh, it's, it's good to be here on this Lord's Day morning. He's given us. It's freezing cold outside, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're warm, very thankful that we have a building to gather in that's warm, very thankful for a setup team that gets here super early to make sure your seats are in place and that the building's warm, Uh, very thankful for many things this morning, very thankful for any guests that are present. We're certainly glad you're with us today. And uh, just as a side note, uh, next Sunday, we're going to have an, a newcomer's event called Explore. It's a luncheon that we're putting together for anybody that's new to our congregation. Maybe you've been attending for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and you want to know a little bit more about us. This is for you. Uh, and so um, it's a lunch right after the service, 1230 next Sunday. Uh, it's, an, uh, it's just an information luncheon. It gives you an opportunity to ask questions, uh, to, to just learn a little bit about who we are. Uh, we provide a good meal and even childcare, and so if you want to be part of that next Sunday, you can register RSVP on our church website or call the church office and uh, hopefully get you plugged into that time next Sunday. And so if you could do that by Wednesday of this week, that would be great if you're interested in that event. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time as we consider his word this morning. Father, thank you for this privilege that we have to hear from you as we open your word, as we hear, Lord, not just the words of a mere man, but Lord, words that were inspired by your Holy Spirit, words that are powerful, words that are transformative. And so, Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive? And Lord, would you speak to change us today? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
But when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, maybe six, somewhere in early childhood, I remember, I remember going to the beach for the first time. Now, as a boy who grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee, I was always surrounded by mountains. And uh, for those of you who enjoyed uh, life on the coast early on, uh, Lord bless you. Uh, but mountains are beautiful. You don't realize how beautiful they are until you move away from them. But at the same time, I remember being fascinated by the ocean. Never been there at this point as a little kid. And we were making our way to the beach for the very first time. And, and I was just fascinated by the ocean. As I would see things on TV and hear about people going to the beach, I was always just fascinated because I was fascinated how you could see the ocean and not see land on the other side, right? I'm used to lakes, surrounded by mountains, and you could stand on one side and see the other side quite clearly. But I was just fascinated by this, and so I was very eager to get to the beach for the first time and see the ocean. And I remember as we're making our way closer and closer, the anticipation builds, right? Make your way closer to the beach, you, you begin to get more and more excited about what you're going to behold and what you're going to see. And I remember as, as we were making our way probably over that bridge that goes over the intercoastal waterway, right? And you, you sort of get that first glimpse of the coastline, mainly dotted by what? Hotels and condominiums, town, whatever they have there on the beach, just the sky rise. And you, you can say, okay, you're looking for the beach and all you see is buildings. But, but I remember as, as we made our way closer, maybe coming down the, the, the backside of, of that bridge, I remember seeing the ocean for the first time. And it was squeezed right in between two, two buildings. You just see a little blue. And then as we turned onto the, onto the road, I could see a little blue again, and then a little bit more blue, and then a little bit less blue. And, and I remember making our way into the parking lot and going up to our hotel room, and, and I just saw glimpses of the ocean just here and there, and I was just enough to, to cause me to be more and more fascinated. I remember going into the hotel room or wherever it was we were staying, and for the first time, pulling back the curtains, and there it was, the ocean in all of its glory, right? And, and, and just being fascinated by, you can't see the other side. I can't see Europe. I can't see Africa or whatever's out there, right? It's just water. And as a little boy, I, it didn't take much to fascinate me, okay? And so I was just mesmerized by what I was, what, what I was seeing and, and, and just seeing the vastness of this blue out there before me. It was quite an experience. In fact, even to this day, when we go to the coast and go to the beach, I, I'm still fascinated by, by the ocean and just its beauty and how the Lord has made it uh, to bring him glory. Well, in a similar way, up until this point for the disciples, you could almost compare their, their experience with Jesus as those small glimpses of ocean that I saw as a kid making our way to the beach for the first time. They had seen glimpses of Jesus's glory through miracles and through the things that he had done and said, but they had not beheld his, the fullness of his glory at, at, at this point. They had just saw the, the little slithers of glory through the miracles that he was performing. And now, now in this scene, Peter, James, and John stood, if you will, in their beachside condo for the first time as the curtain is pulled back just for a moment to see the ocean of God's glory in Christ. Just a brief glimpse, but there it was before their very eyes. The transfiguration, in many ways, is a mysterious event. There's a lot that we don't know about this event, but 
Certainly, it's recorded in, in, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We, we have the event recorded in each of those gospels, but yet there's a lot of mystery here. But I want to point to two specific lessons about this event that are important for not just Peter, James, and John, but important for us as well as we consider who it is Jesus really is in the fullness of his glory and the fullness of who he is as a man and as God in the flesh. We know that Peter has just made his bold declaration there in chapter 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And even last, last week, we, we saw in verse 28 where Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And I think verse 28 sets up chapter 17 because I think that the transfiguration is what Jesus is speaking about to his disciples. And here we are. So two primary points, two lessons that we take away from the transfiguration this morning in the, in the revealing of Christ's glory. A couple of things I want us to consider. First thing is this, number one, when we think about the, the transfiguration, what we learn, even in this mystery, what we learn is that this event confirms for the disciples the supremacy of Jesus. It confirms for them who he truly is. Now, this event would be an event that these three men would never forget. Can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing the things that they saw on that day? They would never forget it. It would transform them for the rest of their lives. In fact, we know that it was a significant event because two of them at least wrote about it. I'm th definitely one of them, and I think the other one was hinting at it as well. And that one would be John. In John chapter 1, verse 14, as John's writing his gospel, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This was a man who had a, who had a direct encounter with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Never forget it. But then there's Peter. In his second letter in chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, verse 16 and 18, he says this, and he's referring to this event. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. They would never forget this event. Now again, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this event. There's a lot that we don't know. We don't know why Jesus only took Peter, James, and John. We know that they were sort of the, the inner three that he invested more time in among the 12. We're not sure even exactly which mountain. Scholars debate, well, it's this mountain. No, it's this mountain. We're not, there, there's probably three good choices, and we're not sure exactly which mountain they were on. We're not sure exactly what this event, what it meant exactly for Jesus to be transfigured and all the ramifications it had for them at that particular time. Although I think we're, we're drawing a couple of important lessons out of it today. There's a lot of mystery here in this, this, this divine revelation of the glory of God in Christ. However, as we think about its confirmation of the supremacy of Jesus, there are a, there are a couple of things I want, want you to see in this confirmation. Number one, it's, it's, I didn't know how else to word it other than this. What we see here is that his glory is being revealed. The, the glory of 
the Messiah, who is God in the flesh, the glory of God is on display in Christ at this moment. Now remember that this is important because what we see is chapter 17 is balancing the, the, the reality of chapter 16. In chapter 16, Jesus has told them again, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and on the third day be raised. And Peter, remember last time, Peter took Jesus aside and tried to correct him. That never works out very well, by the way, but he attempts that and he's rebuked because again, Peter and the other disciples, they just can't fathom a king, a Messiah dying, suffering. He talked about that multiple times in his earthly work that, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to, to, to perish. I'm going to suffer. But he would always He would always remind them, but that's not the end. Three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But they would just get bogged down on the suffering part. So what we see is is Jesus, Peter makes that confession, you're the Christ. And and then Jesus says, by the way, I'm going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And Peter takes him aside to counsel him and says, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance for me. Uh, for you're setting your mind on the things of God, but not on the things of man. And Jesus goes on and talks about the cost of discipleship, how it's going to require us even to suffer and take up our cross daily. And so there's a lot of suffering kinds of imagery and language being, being thrown at the disciples here. And so it's as if Jesus is balancing that out and saying, okay, let me just pull the curtain back just to remind you who I really am. So that's what we see here. His glory is being revealed because this, they needed this. These men needed this affirmation at this point of their lives and of their ministry. And so just for a moment, Jesus allows these three disciples to, to get a glimpse of the fullness of his glory. A glory that I would remind you that he voluntarily set aside in his incarnation. You remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Paul said that Jesus emptied himself. Emptied himself. Now, did that mean that Jesus ceased being God or that somehow he, he ceased from having all of his attributes? Not at all. It simply meant that for this time in his earthly ministry, these attributes and the fullness of his glory were, were being veiled so that for the most part, what was seen was his humanity and his, and his incarnation. These were being veiled. The, the, the glory of God was being veiled and not on permanent full display. But here, the curtains are pulled back just for a moment. Really serving as a confirmation for these disciples to say, yes, I'm going to suffer, but by the way, this is who I am. In light of all of the suffering that Christ would endure, in light of the suffering that he spoke about, a lot of the suffering that the prophets spoke about. You should read Isaiah 53, and it's very explicit as to what the Messiah would endure. And, and Jesus confirms that in his ministry. But, but again, in light of all of that, the transfiguration was that brief reminder that Jesus is supreme over all. He's supreme over all. And so it's as if he's saying, listen, I am going to suffer, but my glory outweighs my suffering. I'm going to suffer and it's necessary that I suffer for your sake. But, but look, we're talking about a conquering Savior. 
not a defeated Savior. I think that some scholars have even pointed out that the, the, the display of the, the glory that we see in the transfiguration is even a, a testimony of the glory that we will one day enjoy in our resurrected bodies. And I certainly, I certainly think that there's an aspect of truth to this here as Jesus is, is being displayed before them. And it's, it's sort of setting that hope. And, and I'm reminded that, that Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. His glory is on display. But a second confirmation, a second thing that we see here is that that his position is confirmed. You know, as Jesus stood before the disciples transfigured, two other guys show up, Moses and Elijah. Now again, how the disciples recognized them, I don't know. It's not like they had them on Facebook, right? They didn't have the Jesus picture Bible, you know, yet. So how they recognized that, oh, that's Moses and Elijah, not somebody else, I don't know, but probably maybe in the conversation that was taking place and God's revealing that truth to them. But, but here they are, Moses and Elijah appear. And Luke tells us in his account that, that they were discussing the things that were about to take place about Jesus' suffering. And so Peter, again, being the spokesman for the disciples and being the, the, uh, having the great mouth that he does, says to Jesus, it's good that we are here. And there's a lot of discussion as to the, the, the mood of that statement and even whether or not that's a question, but I think it's a, it's a statement. He says, it's good that we are here. And it's not necessarily to be taken negatively, but, but what we see him follow up with helps us understand what he's getting at. He says, let us put up three tents for you guys. Now, what does he mean by this? That's, that's a strange thing for Peter to say. It's good that we're here. Let us put up three tents for you guys. Well, the word he actually uses for tent is actually the word tabernacle. And that, that word had significant meaning for them and for any Jew that would have understood the, the Old Testament. You didn't have to be a Jew necessarily, but certainly the Jewish people would have understood that, that most likely Peter's referring to the Feast of Tabernacles here because that festival would, during that festival, people would construct booths, often made out of uh, branches or, or, or straw, and they would live in these booths, these little temporary shelters throughout the seven-day feast as they would be celebrating the faithfulness of God and God's provision. And, and even the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration that looked, according to Zechariah chapter 14, it looked forward to the, to the future fulfillment of the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so it had eschatological ramifications, meaning that it had also a future element that it was pointing to, not just the past work, but also the future reality of the kingdom. So it was a celebration of this sort. So, so what's probably going on in Peter's mind is he's thinking, here's, here's the glory of the Messiah. He's thinking that the kingdom is being inaugurated in its fullness at this point. And he's thinking, Feast of Tabernacles, let's set these things up. Let's, let's get this party rocking, right? Let's, let's bring it on. He's just putting the cart before the horse a little bit. So that's what Peter is thinking But while he was still speaking, we're told a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Now at that point, Peter and the other two are on their faces in fear. But when they lifted up their eyes, we're told, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now what do we make of this? Why were Moses and Elijah there and now why why are they gone? You have to remember Moses and Elijah, both of these men were significant players in the Old Testament. And most likely Moses is here representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. And in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a summarization of the entire Old Testament message as these two individuals are there with Jesus saying as if the, the entire Old Testament has been building to this day. The Messiah is now here. We know also that these two men encountered God on mountains and in their own way beheld beheld parts of the glory of God. And we know Moses' experience on Sinai and Elijah's experience there as he stood at the mouth of the cave, at mouth of the cave that, that they both encountered God. Again, their presence is likely indicative of, of summarizing the entire Old Testament and that Jesus is the grand fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets pointed to. Some say that that Moses, being the being the the one who wrote the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, the law, is there to 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 instruct the people of God. And while Elijah, as he represents the prophets, are, is there to alarm, to 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 warn the people of God. And so you you have Jesus being presented here not just as another prophet like Moses, and not just as another prophet or someone like Elijah, but rather the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, the one that, that, that fulfills all that they built their lives and ministries upon. And, and it's as if what we see when, when they lift up their eyes and they see no one but Jesus only, verse eight, it's as if the Bible that God himself is ultimately saying, listen, Jesus has no equal. These men were significant. God called them to fulfill a purpose and have a place within the, the establishment of his people and development of his people, but Jesus has no equal. I love what the great Charles Spurgeon said about this account. He said to his congregation, speaking of Christ, he said, look to him and though it be Jesus only, though Moses should condemn you through the law and Elijah alarm you, yet Jesus only shall be enough to comfort and enough to save you. As we see, the supremacy of Christ on display, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the Messiah on display in the transfiguration, that he has no equal and that he is the grand fulfillment of all that the Old Testament writers had, had written and what the foundation that they had placed. He's now the fulfillment of those things and, and, and the voice from heaven saying, look to him, listen to him. He is the one and the only one which you must have hope. There's a second lesson that we take from this passage. We see that more in verses 9 through 13. I would say that this transfiguration exposes the glory of our salvation. 
Let me explain what I mean by that. We know that after the transfiguration, verse 9, we're told that the four of them headed back down the mountain. And again, Jesus says, it's probably not a good idea you tell people what you just saw until after the resurrection. And we know that they, again, were discussing themselves. He mentions resurrection. You know, these guys, I think they had a little ADD or something going on because they would just get, you know, sidetracked by a, a, a aspect of the conversation. And so they begin discussing among themselves. Well, he said, Resurre- what does the resurrection mean? And they're discussing that. And then they, they ask him because Jesus says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then they ask him. We know from the other gospel writers are talking about the resurrection. And then they say, then, then why did the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? They just had seen him. They're discussing among themselves what the resurrection meant and, and all that's going on. And then it's as if they, they, they go to, back to Elijah. Why was he there? What's going on with this Elijah guy? Why is he, what, what, what's the deal with him? Why, why, did the, why did the scribes say that he must come first? And Jesus says, verse 11, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. He's, he's in essence restating what the, what, the gospel, or what the prophet Malachi said in, in his account. And then he answers, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did whatever they pleased. So also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. We know that in Malachi chapter 4, there towards the end of that prophet's writing, Elijah is mentioned as a type, as a forerunner of sorts that would precede the work of the coming of the Messiah. And he would be one who would inaugurate the the ministry of the Messiah. And and what he says there in Malachi 4 is he would be the one that would, would lay the foundation, if you will, for the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that great and dreadful day of the Lord is, is language that's used throughout the scriptures, not just to talk about an event, but a series of events that would culminate in that great and final day of the Lord. So we have to be careful in applying that language, not just to one future thing, but rather a whole lineage of things that, that build up to that. We have to understand that. And so he's talking about that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And, and Jesus goes on to affirm the reality of Elijah coming and, and says, in fact, he's already come. That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. That's crystal clear from verses 11 through 13. And Jesus goes on to make his point. John came, they rejected his message, and they killed him. So why should it surprise you that the Messiah is going to suffer the same things that the forerunner suffered? Shouldn't surprise you. If John's ministry of restoration, which he came preaching the kingdom, if his ministry of restoration, which set the path for the coming of the Messiah, the ministry of the Messiah resulted in his death, then you shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is going to to suffer and die. Martin Luther once said this, there is not one word in the Bible that is extra cruesome. In essence, there's not a word in the Bible that can be understood apart from the cross. So Jesus is making sure here that his disciples understand that just because they saw Elijah on the mountain, it did not mean that Jesus was going to immediately reign in glory without the suffering of the cross. Again, I think that they saw this, they saw this, they interpreted these events as the inauguration of the kingdom. And they're saying, Jesus, you keep talking about suffering If Elijah has come, now we've seen you, why is there suffering needed? 
And again, they're still struggling to put all the pieces together. Friends, the point I think that, that we can sort of step back and realize that, that Jesus is making here is, is that, that, the, that the glorious Christ is also the suffering Christ. The suffering Christ is also the glorious Christ. You, you, you must have both in this, this work of salvation. The very one who reigns in glory is also the very one who suffers for sinners. Let's go again to Philippians chapter 2 to see what Paul says. Verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul says, speaking about humility, and he uses Christ as an example, as an illustration. So let me just talk about that illustration. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Without that, we're toast. He had to do that so that our sins could be forgiven. But, verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Suffering and glory. He's the very, the very one who reigns in glory, who reigned in glory, who was present at creation, the Son of God, who, who is who's divine, who's the exact radiance of the glory of God. Colossians, Paul says he's the, the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. The same one who has all power, all authority, all glory is the same one who, who laid aside all of his rights and veiled those and humbled himself, humbled himself for us. He suffered, he bled and he died so that your sins could be forgiven. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And after that, a short time later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is today. And he's coming again in glory and power. Friends, the suffering Christ is also the glorious Christ. We have a Savior who has defeated death and reigns at the right hand of the Father on high today. We don't have a Savior that's entombed. We don't have a Savior that, that died and suffered and we go burn candles at his grave. We have a Savior who reigns in glory and power. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it, to think that God himself, the majestic king of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who's holy, 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 the one who's holy and righteous in every aspect, humbled himself and was killed for you. Swallow that. You can't get your mind around that, can you? You just can't even begin to fathom the, the fullness of what we're talking about. And that's what we see in chapter 16 and 17. The suffering Christ is also the glorious Christ. The disciples had to get that. And eventually they did. So, what should we take away from this today? Let me give you three quick things. As you consider the transfiguration, because listen... You and I weren't there. We weren't Peter, James, and John. We didn't see what they saw. 
but it's recorded for us. It's recorded for us. And in essence, through, through their eyes, we can see what they, what they saw. So what do we take away from this passage? For, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you and me today? Well, several things. Number one is that you and I must look to Christ. We must look to Christ. When Jesus stood before, before his disciples in his glory, the curtain was pulled back for that moment. There's no doubt in my mind that at this point, he is confirming for them that he is the one that they must place all of their hope and all of their trust. Again, he's doing this to encourage and confirm and, and help them understand that the suffering part of his ministry is essential, but it's not the end. And so this scene for these men had to surely strengthen their hope. Especially after all of this talk and the, of the suffering and, and death that he keeps talking about. And even, even when the, the cross happens, when the crucifixion happens, they go back and, and, and they're sort of in that, oh, what do we do? What, what's going on? And it's events like this that, that help bring them back to the fullness of Christ and his work. So as that curtain is pulled back for Jesus to see in his glory, what they see is not just the suffering ministry of Christ, but the glorious reality of who he is. Friends, the truth of the matter is that this is the, the, the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus. Your hope and my hope is bound in this man alone. We live in a world that is filled with all types of chaos and, and sin. Talk about what's wrong with this. Sin's what's wrong with this. We're rebels. We live in a fallen, broken world that's a mess. Where's your hope? Your hope is in the one who suffered for you, but also the one who reigns in glory and power. He's a great Savior because He's a victorious Savior. He's the living Savior. If you're here today and you don't know this, you don't know this Jesus, maybe you just know Him by name, you've, you've heard and maybe you've been in church, maybe you haven't, maybe you, you, you understand all what we're talking about here in bits and pieces, but listen, friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know Christ, you don't have the hope of salvation, right here is your hope. The one who is glorious and beautiful and holy and righteous and, and, and perfect in all of his being is the same one who humbled himself and died for people like you. So that if you quit looking to yourself and quit trying to find hope in this world and quit trying to fix yourself and look to Christ and rest your hope in him and trust in him, you'll be forgiven, you'll be saved, you'll be reconciled to God. That's your hope. Trust in Christ. Believe in him. Look to him. We should look to Christ, but we should also listen to Christ. You know, when, when the cloud came over and overshadowed them, the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
voice commands them to listen to Jesus. This is significant. Moses was a pretty important guy, right? The law. Moses penned it. Moses had a ministry that was absolutely critical to Israel's existence and development, even their rescue. He was a part of the one who God used to rescue them. And so he's significant. Elijah was another significant player in the Old Testament. He was a great prophet, the prophet of prophets, so to speak. A mouthpiece for, for the Lord. But when compared to Jesus, these were simply men who were used of God to point to someone and something beyond themselves. Jesus was the embodiment and fulfillment of what they preached. You can't miss that. The Old Testament lays the foundation for what would come in the New Testament. It was the promise. Till Christ came and fulfilled the promise that God had made. So yes, these men were significant, but when it came to comparing them to Jesus... Jesus trumped them. He fulfilled their ministry. He didn't replace their ministry. He fulfilled their ministry. What they said, they, they, were, they weren't preaching themselves. They were preaching the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is there to confirm that. It's a great lesson that we should take away. Actually, several great lessons we should take away from this. Number one, it means that we should always read our Bibles with Christ-centered lenses. Don't ever read the Old Testament apart from Christ. And don't read Christ apart from the Old Testament. Everything in Scripture was written in one way or the other to declare and announce the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He is the center of the revelation that we have in Holy Scripture. So when you read your Bibles, you read it with Christ-centered lenses. You understand that the Old Testament is laying that foundation. It's, it's setting the, the, the foundation in place so that Christ, when he came and fulfilled that hope and fulfilled the promise and established the hope, we could have life and joy and peace. But another thing that we should take away from this is that we must listen to Christ before all others. And I want to clarify what I mean by that. A couple of things. Let me just talk about men in general, people, humans, men and women. There's a tendency for us to elevate the teaching of man over Christ. Now, I read a lot, try to. I quote a lot of people. That's a good thing, as long as they're saying the right things. But we must remember that a man or a woman is only that. So let me quote a man to say what I'm saying. J.C. Ryle said this, the best of men are only men at their very best. Patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, and I would add even Billy Grahams of the world, all, all are sinners who need a savior holy, useful, honorable in their place, but sinners after all. They must never be allowed to stand between us and Christ. He alone is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. So friends, when you're reading your books and we're quoting our 
our favorite writers, we have to remember who they are and keep them in their place. If they're pointing to Christ, if they're confirming the scriptures, praise God. God has called them and gifted them to do that. But Christ must be key. He must be priority. He must be the one whom, to whom we trust. So the question could come, well, what about the Bible? What about the Bible? Men wrote the Bible, right? Well, Peter actually says, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. God inspired. This is why the doctrine of inspiration is so important. The doctrine of inspiration is so important is because the Bible is God's word to us. It reveals Christ and is the word of Christ. Remember, I quoted for you in the introduction, I said, these men never forgot what they, see, what they saw on that day, Mount of Transfiguration. I quoted Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me quote that again. Let me begin in verse 16, 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Look at verse 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You hear what Peter's saying? I was there on the mountain when the curtains were pulled back. But you, And I have something more certain than that. The word of God. Where that event is revealed for us. It's a call for us. It's a reminder for us to submit to Christ's authority, even as it's revealed in the Bible. Listen, you don't need another transfiguration. As glorious as that was and as important and critical as that was for that, ple- that place and time, friends, you've been given the, the inspired word of God that records that event and a whole lot of other things where Christ is on display. If you wanna see Christ, read your Bible. You wanna see Jesus. Listen to him speak through his word. It doesn't matter what your feelings say or what other people are telling you. Listen to Jesus. You say, well, I wasn't on the mountain. You don't need to be on the mountain. Just open the book and listen. Quit listening to the world. Quit listening to to counsel that says do this and do that. Friends, Christ has spoken. Listen to him. Listen to him. Submit to him. And then number three, live for him. Live for Christ. I'll just say this in passing. Listen, listening to Jesus implies obedience. Listening implies obedience. Because after these men would encounter Jesus on this mountain, and after they would hear the voice from heaven say to them, listen to him, they would eventually go on and fulfill a ministry 
that had great importance for the advance of the kingdom and the establishment of the church. These men would go on to live and suffer and die for the cause of Christ. When they beheld his glory, when I said their lives would never be the same, their lives were never the same. When you see Jesus for who he is, the suffering servant and yet the glorified risen Savior, Matthew 16 verses 24 through 28 are no issue. They are no issue. Remember my trip to the beach. That first time when I saw the ocean. I wonder where you are on your journey to beholding the the ocean of Christ's glory. Maybe you've never seen it. Never encountered it. And you have no idea what you're missing. Maybe some of you are here and, and, and you've seen glimpses of it. But you've never stood in that room where the curtains were pulled back and you've seen the fullness of his glory as revealed for us. And you long to see that. Friends, what we have revealed in the pages of Scripture is the full and sufficient revelation of the Messiah. We see him in his humility and suffering, and we see him in the fullness of his glory. Paul would later say in Colossians 1, verse 27, that God has chosen, he's speaking about the Gentiles' inclusion, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The reality about the suffering Savior and the risen glorious Savior is that if you trust him, he will fill you. Paul says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, you can not only know this glorious Christ, but you can be filled with him. I'll just ask you a simple question. Have you encountered Christ in his fullness? The suffering one, but also the glorious one. He is your hope. No one else. Let's pray. Father, we... We acknowledge that our lives are oftentimes filled with clutter and filled with with things that distract us and keep us keep us mesmerized by temporal things. Oftentimes our focus is in worldly matters. And we don't see Christ as we should. But perhaps there are those in this room right now, Lord, they they confess you as Savior and Lord of their life. They, They love you. They want their lives to be transformed for your glory and your honor. And Lord, maybe in recent days, they've just not 
beheld Christ as they should. Maybe they've not seen Jesus as the suffering one and the triumphant, glorious one who is their hope and who is their foundation. Maybe they just see themselves. Maybe they just see other things or other people and and they just get bogged down in the struggles of this world. Father, would you you minister to their hearts right now? Would Would you help their eyes to behold the glory of Christ? Father, maybe there are some here today that they've never beheld Christ. They've never seen him for who he truly is. They, they've only seen him for what others have said. They've never encountered him personally. God, would you break the shackles of their sin and bondage this morning and enable them, enable them to run to the opened arms of Christ find hope and salvation. Lord, help us to see you as you are. Help us to see you as you have revealed yourself to be, not as we think, not as how we think you should be. God, we thank you that you are the glorious King radiant one, the triumphant one, the majestic one, the holy one, but yet you humbled yourself so that we could be redeemed. God, help us to see as we should. We pray in Christ's name.